0: You're listening to The Sportsman's Nation, brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is one of the fastest-growing social media applications for your mobile device. It's an app, right? And uh, similar to Facebook or Instagram, it is a place for outdoor enthusiasts to meet and share their passion for the outdoors. So for more information, go to the Google Play Store or wherever you download your apps and download the Go Wild app. Or you can visit com for more information. Let's get outside. It's time to go wild.
1: Hey guys, welcome to another Land and Legacy Habitat Heroes podcast. And we are very excited to bring you guys this podcast. We're live and on site, honestly. Yeah, and, here. and it's... Uh, It's a podcast that has lots of topics. Yes. What we have for you is some landowners from different parts of the world talking about what gets them outside and what they enjoy about it. Um, Podcast listeners. And so we talk a lot about uh, different things that they enjoy about the hunting and what got them into it. We also have step by step process of planting native restoring uh, prairies grasses yeah. so if you're a guy looking for information on okay what do I do how do I even get there it's a long process a lot longer than a food plot it's it's really a year year yep. process but once you get it established this is a lifetime of of enjoyment it's it's
2: not nearly as overwhelming as you might Think it is. Promise you, promise you it's not. And and we also interview a guy who likes killing vegetation more than he likes killing deer. And he's a he's a habitat land manager land manager, prairie restoration guru, um, Mr. John Wingo himself from Pure Air Native. So um extremely knowledgeable, lots of great points, lots of great perspectives here in this podcast as we're recording In Nashville, Tennessee, at the National Wild Turkey Federation. This is the after hours party with Land and Legacy here at uh, the convention. Hope you guys enjoy it.
1: So, we're sitting here. This is our after hours event with uh, Pure Air Natives, Land and Legacy. Uh, We've covered uh, topics tonight. We've talked a lot about native vegetation, habitat restoration, specifically with the native grasses and wildflowers. We've got multiple people here, but we've got a couple of guys here from. When you, I guess, when you look at where you guys live, you were a long ways apart. Long ways. So go ahead and very long ways. Apart. We'll start with you, Adams. Sure. Introduce yourself, sure. what you do, and then where you're at. Sure.
3: Thanks. Well, uh, my name is Adam Winkleman, and I'm from Central Minnesota, so up by the Saint Cloud area, about an hour and a half north of the cities. Um, I got a new company, just started a new company called Relevant, that. Uh, Got some solutions for uh, optical surfaces, eyeglasses and um, binoculars and such that reflect a lot of ultraviolet light, which turkey can see. We can uh, we can resist that from happening and kind of complete that concealment. So we're new. This is my first show. Um, and uh, honestly, kind of new to turkey hunting in general. Um, only been out probably three, four times in my life and wanted to uh, get out here and see what this organization's about. It's pretty interesting, pretty good. Yeah.
1: What, have you ever been to any other shows? I'm sure you have other like sure. trade shows, expos. How does this one compare? What's th-
3: Yeah, uh, I've been to a lot of shows, <clears throat> all on the optical side, obviously. Yeah. I've spent 20 years in, in, in optics in and optical industry. Um, I would say that uh, this is uh, about as organized and exciting as, as any of them that are out there. It's really interesting. I think that NWTF does a great job of combining the the – uh, grassroots piece of this, right? right? You know, if you go down to the chapters, as I'm learning this, they're all volunteer-run, they're all volunteer-based, and so when you do things on a volunteer level, you're you're in, you're committed, you're emotionally attached to what, you know, the the subject or the organization might be. But it's not just that; it doesn't end there. It actually builds up into a real professionally organized, you know, entity that's got districts and regions, and it all just kind of flows up. And so, I think they hit the the nail on the head by being able to attach a m- emotion with you know, organization. And so, uh, unlike some of the other ones where that I've been where it's basically an organization like the Vision Council, which is an amazing organization, and they tie in with like Reed and it's it's really just drilled down and, and then, you know, you have uh, independent people that are trying to build their businesses or whatever. So, I've been, I love it. I, I've been really excited about, about it. And 58,000, I think, people, they figured. That's what they estimate. Through. It's
1: crazy. <laughs> it's insane. Today in it was three days. Unbelievable, trying to walk through the aisles. And yeah. We stayed in the booth most of the day because of so many people walking, but uh, it's definitely a fun place. There's a wide variety. You've got landowners all the way down to the guys that hunt public ground. Uh, One thing really in common at this show is we all like turkeys or have some sort
3: of well. He thinks they're pests. <laughs> yeah, they're invasive. Where I'm at, I love it. We're gonna we're gonna get after s- him this year. That's you're
1: right. I can't believe you're saying that around here. People will be banging on your hotel and oh, not trying <laughs> to it. get permission to come. He it. said St. It. Cloud
3: area. Right. That's <laughs> it. I'd give him permission, man. I love it. I love people coming out. We'll go hunt turkeys, whitetail now. That's limited <laughs> to the very few, and we got some fun whitetail stuff too. But the turkeys, you know, unreal. Let me know. Yeah. So well, probably also. doesn't green up out there till what? July Fourth. Sometimes, man, days <laughs> like we've been having, I don't know if it's ever going to get above zero again. But oh man, um, now a green up happens in May or so. Yeah.
1: You know. When is turkey season for you?
3: April, uh, third Wednesday of April. Okay. Yeah, it was when it opened. So it's, so it's about the
1: same soon. time as ours.
3: Yeah, it really is. Yeah. 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 It'll last a lot for different whatever, four weeks. Weather
1: conditions, most likely. Although last year we last had snow on like opening a, day, so yeah. it probably was a lot like, so like a Minnesota area. opener. And about yeah. twenty mile an hour winds. That was terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. Um, I know we're gonna get got some more questions for you, but yep. let's go ahead and let Patrick here introduce himself.
4: Okay, I'm Patrick Stewart. I live in Marietta, Georgia, actually Kennesaw, Georgia. Uh, firefighter for Marietta City of Marietta. I've uh, been there 17 years. Wow! And, wow. Um, so enjoy my career, but uh, have a small farm in South Central Kentucky, and yeah. so I'm a non-resident landowner, and um, just always looking to uh, improve the farm and uh, see what I can do better uh, for the wildlife
1: wow I, I i guess you told me that day i hadn't even thought about it but i th- th- appreciate you being a firefighter and all the other firefighters out there that listen. and thank you uh yeah that's so where you're firefighting what is that uh mostly structure fires i'm guessing i have one one cousin who's a f- new firefighter but i'm not around a lot of firefighters so i'm curious what that what's that like for you 17 years into it
4: uh Several structure fires. We we do a whole lot of EMS now. Okay, uh, as first responders, so that's yeah th- uh, definitely the majority of the calls that we run. Yeah, um, but after that, it's spread out from uh, fires, auto accidents. Um, gotcha. Pretty much, if people don't know who to call, they call the fire department. <laughs> <laughs> so we gotcha. we're jack of you all trades and master of none, and yeah, uh, we go see if we can help. Very
1: cool. Now you live in Georgia. Yep. But you own land, hunt in Kentucky.
4: Correct. Correct. Okay.
1: what
2: drew you to that part of Kentucky was it land price or family or just I just want to be in the bluegrass state
4: no I uh, I was going to Illinois for a few years yeah and uh, on some paid hunts and it's a very long drive yeah and uh, you know driving through Kentucky the scenery looked somewhat the same um, and it just uh, you know it just looked like great place to hunt right so um, looking to not drive, 12 and 13 hours, uh, started looking around. Kentucky's a state that has come on here recently with, uh, you know, producing a lot of good whitetail. And uh, so leased some land for a couple of years and just, just really enjoyed it and then mm-hmm. started looking for something to buy.
2: Yeah, and they've got the uh, really early season opportunity. I think it's like September 5th or so it opens up. That's the first Saturday yeah. in September. Yeah. That's, that's a velvet chance. Have you ever had... Or gone after a velvet deer so far. I have stuff. not. Um, yeah. I've only owned
4: my property a couple of years, right? And uh, I guess I'm a little selfish with my time. I want to hunt when it gets cooler. Sure. No. Yeah. So I've uh,
1: hunted Kentucky on that first opener, and it was it was fun because you get to chase deer in early September. But at the same time, you got to pack multiple thermosels with you because it's yeah. it's terrible. You
4: do. I actually found that the last two years I've been planting food plots. You during know, that week. During that week, because. Right. You know, I, I want to wait and, and save my time for sure. for hunting when the weather's a little different.
1: Yeah. Right, gotcha. I so, is this your uh, first experience at National Wild Turkey Federation <coughs> I National think Convention? this
4: is my fourth or fifth. Okay. Uh, came several years, uh, five, six years ago. We came a few times, and then the last two years, I've been able to bring my my two boys, my wife, and um, they they enjoy it. It's it's a madhouse, but uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, they were they were out there. My two boys each of them wanted to uh to buy a mouth call today so we uh joined in and all the noise making um, (laughs) so um it was uh it was interesting
1: yeah i think actually when your boys came by the booth he they were practicing they were practicing (laughs) yep Uh, did not sound like turkeys um, (laughs) i tried to teach your youngest the trick of hiss like a cat that's like the very basic like once you can figure out how to hiss like a cat then you can start making those noises Roll a little over. bit closer to a turkey, and then just break it up into the rhythm of a turkey. And there you go; you're calling them.
4: Yeah, you, so. were, you were teaching them much better yeah. than I was. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, walking with them through the aisles, I think I told them to put it up several times. Oh, that's <laughs> so funny. I do remember last year in turkey season, you were talking about opener, uh, and it snowed. Yeah, that was uh, the youth uh-huh. season. Um, okay. For Kentucky. Okay. And it was cold. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was the Sunday morning. I've uh, had both my boys out, and it was like in the 20s, and um, three gobblers gobbling within about 300 yards, and both of them looked at me and said, we're cold. We're ready to <laughs> time, go. Time to go in. I'm like, you're kidding, right? But, so no, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that cold weather yeah. was tough on the kids last year.
2: It oh. certainly was. It certainly was. It was tough on us. I'm not going to lie. It, got, yeah. it was cold that opening morning.
1: And
4: we've talked a lot about
1: our childhood, like... We had terrible boots, terrible clothes, froze, oh, my gosh, so cold. And so yeah, it sounds like you introduced them the same way my dad introduced <laughs> yeah. me. Hey, I don't care. You're cold, but we're here, so That's enjoy it. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So you guys, you know, both listen to podcasts. What is it about land that is kind of the the addiction? What What is it for, for you? What draws you out there?
3: I mean, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's just so peaceful. I just love the whole thing. There's a number of different reasons why um, I enjoy our land. We were really blessed to have a couple hundred acres that we're able to, to manage and work, and, and there was work to be done with it. And And I think that's part of what I really enjoy is actually, I, I love growth. I'm an entrepreneur by sort of spirit. I've had a business and sold that, and I the company that I worked for, you know, we built another business inside of that, and now I'm doing this again. And I have this addiction to, like, seeing things grow and build. And and I don't understand it because it's like getting your butt kicked every day. <laughs> and so I don't know. I guess I like abuse. But um, the same is true with the land. You know, I just really, 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 really like looking at the map and just agonizing over it and thinking about how could I make this better? And well, that was stupid. I shouldn't have never done that. Now, how do I fix that mm-hmm. when, you know, you got established stuff and I was able to put it into CRP and a cost sharing program and stuff? And so some of it I can't. Some of it is what it is, and you got to live with those mistakes, and and we'll try to go through it. So I just really um, I like that part of it, and then um, I don't think there's any other feeling unless you do it for me than just sitting in a tree. It's just, it sounds ridiculous. I mean, I'm a 30 out of 30 extrovert. I mean, I'm over on the scale that doesn't hardly exist, and yet I, when I sit in a tree, it's just like it's peaceful, uh-huh. you know. And then you get to you know, be with wildlife and they don't even know you're on the planet and they're walking underneath your stand or you're calling them and they're responding. It's just that ability to be able to do that, an opportunity to be able to do that, for me, is, is wonderful. Now, if I get my wife to have that same enjoyment, wow, well, then watch out. But maybe yeah. I don't want that. Yeah, yeah, be oh, careful peaceful. what I <laughs> wish for. But for me, those are the things, Adam, I think, you know, yeah. it's that growth and ability to be able to, you know, try to make the habitat better, and, and then just enjoy it. You kind of almost in. have
1: a place. Like, it, it, yeah. once
3: you do the work, you feel
1: like you fit into it, and it's yeah, that's not right. just tromping through the woods trying to kick something that's right. up. Yeah. It's like
3: you, you have a place, you, you fit into the system. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. For me, that's what I like. Yeah.
4: Yeah. It, for me, it's my getaway. Yeah. Um Whether I'm out working on the farm or hunting, it doesn't matter. That's when the rest of the the world and all the troubles and cares can kind of be put to the side and... And forgotten about it, and I really enjoy that time uh, because life is so busy. Mm-hmm. But uh, growing up, just always loved the outdoors. Uh, got my bachelor's degree in natural resource management and never used it. So now <laughs> now that I do on a farm, um, it's just nice to get to to use the, that little bit of knowledge and start to implement some things that I've always wanted to do. Um, growing up in the South, I'm part of that uh, traditional hunting club culture, so you know, you were at the landowner's mercy where you lease the land and that's what you got. You really couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And um, so now that I'm, you know, having that opportunity to do something else, just just trying to make it my property as good as it can be for the mm-hmm. experience when we're there hunting, but also just to enjoy, like with you guys' podcast, to try to make it what it's actually supposed to be. And I can see that if I can make it what it's supposed to be, then the hunting aspect um, it's going to be there
2: it's a benefit down the road sure it's gonna come it's gonna happen sure. for sure and you get to work the land day in and day out mm-hmm. the whole time
1: so we've got a couple we got other guests but i know you guys got any questions you had something you want to cover here on this podcast too sure
3: Sure. you know for, for me i have a question that i've been trying to get and it's it's been a bit of a struggle trying to really get answers out there on the on the web so i figured you know that's dangerous. That's where all day the truths age. are. That's where <laughs> the truth is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm sure inside there there is a lot of the truth, right? But I'm having a hard time discerning the difference between what it is and and, right. and openly I'm I'm not a farmer. I'm not new. I am um, kind of like you, you know. I wanted to be a DNR. Actually, I was what my my whole plan was to go to Bemidji and and go to school there or whatever and then I met with the counselor and they told me the classes I needed to take and well, I just wasn't ready for that. So we, uh, I've always tell people that I was never smart enough for college and I was too much of a coward for the military. So I just joined sales. I went into sales and, <laughs> and, and so I, um, I studied I've been kind of studying all this stuff and trying to learn it and whatever and try to figure it out. But we have a huge issue on our, on our property. My uncle and I have adjoining properties and, and it's with hemp, And we are really, really struggling with trying to figure out, what's the solution to this that I I mean I understand I think how we can probably beat it up over time and and that's great and that's good you know with different techniques and stuff but I want to pound it now Mm -hmm. and while I do that build out a plan for you know a sustainable a solution uh, because everything we've tried is uh is failing and uh it is big and it's Mm -hmm. a lot and it's invasive and so any, Any suggestions a, you have on that's that? That's a
1: topic you? that we discussed here at our event tonight. Was, you know, when you look at water hemp, it's one of the many species we yeah. have that's built up this resistance yeah. to glyphosate. So, right. a lot of our Roundup Ready soybeans, you're starting to see these invasives that just come back and come back, and it's almost like <laughs> the spray, or it is the spray, just has no effect. And yeah. we talked about changing that over out of a out of a glyphosate tolerant bean or a Roundup Ready bean to a more uh, a different bean. Use a different herbicide, a, cool. a Liberty Link. Or, and you talked about using dicamba. Sure. We've seen where areas of the country that have had horrible water hemp switch over to Liberty Link, knock it out completely. But another step with that, and it also helps, uh, helps the land, is including cover crops. With that, right, so you okay. start getting this breakdown of sure. of cover crops to kind of serve as a weed mat the next spring as you come back to plant the beans. Yeah, and doing that, you start weeding it out to literally weeding it out to where there's not nearly as much water hemp. Um, yeah. You're killing it with that, and then at the same time though, you don't want that uh, water hemp to build up the resistance to the, the link. Uh, Liberty Link, yeah. and so you go you create this rotation not only with with cover crops but a rotation with Different herbicides to where it's not year after year after year of Liberty Link until it's built up that resistance. You you include other herbicides to to knock it out. That's, Matt, you got anything to add on that? I'll say just
2: uh, coming back in. Don't you know? Think, Joe. You know, from a, from a farming aspect, um, just a herbicide is a solution. Come back with that cover crop. There, yeah. There's a okay. lot of science behind um, suppressing weeds through cover crops. Competition and stuff. Competition, um, protecting that ground, the soil,
1: and keeping it covered um, through spring green up. When so. you think about nature and, and the way it works, bare ground isn't natural. It's mm-hmm. not something that's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And when it does happen, though, nature tries to cover it up as quickly as possible. Sure. Um, and so when it, when it, is exposed it tries to cover it with whatever is going to grow and so every time you diss the field you've got bare ground which it doesn't want and so then you plant your beans but you have spacing in between the beans yep. and it's trying to get something to cover it up and yep. and it ends up being something that's tolerant you make of the herbicide site
2: perfect for, for weed sure yeah but you're trying to grow a commodity crop so you make this perfect place, you know, this this environment for weeds, and, and then you don't want them. So let's not make it perfect for weeds. Let's bring in the cover crop and then plant, let the commodity come through, and then you can spray out the cover crop.
3: I don't know how much time you want to spend on it, but, like, do, do you see, like, a, what's the sequence of it? I mean, is there a pre-emerge process to, you know, um, where does that whole sequence fall into play, or do you just hit it? let's Happy just planted. jump
1: in in January 1 and last last fall you planted your cover crop so January 1 you've got You've got wheat and turnips or whatever. Whatever's consistent snow. of the. I have snow. You have January snow. January one, I have you snow. Have <laughs> snow, and underneath that snow, you have cover <laughs> crop. Okay, yes, okay. Going, great. oh my gosh, I can't wait till spring. Because right. um, <laughs> herbicide. It's a deicer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Pre-emergent is deicer. It's salt, uh, and so then you fast forward and you get through the melting of the snow, and you yeah. get into the more warmer temperatures. You see that cover crop start growing. You start seeing it really expand and and flourish, and then it gets about time. For for planting season yeah. and you terminate that cover crop um, and it basically as it's terminated it starts to fall down and lay flat on the ground at the same time you've probably come in and planted your your crop mm-hmm. and so you have this cover crop now laying on the ground you drill right through it and planted your beans and that's just a the cover crop is now your native your, not native, but your natural weed barrier, weed barrier and protecting, putting armor on that soil to where there's not yeah. exposed soil wanting, causing so weeds to want to grow.
2: You don't have that beneficial weed environment at that point anymore. right? And, and so and you've got
1: and months of that decaying and decaying mm-hmm. and decaying and at that point you've got the beans growing up to now, hopefully they've, they've canopied out sure. so there's shade on the ground so there's no need for something to germinate and try to protect that soil. That's good. Then you go into the fall and you've harvested the beans and you plant your next cover crop.
5: Yeah.
3: Or let keep be something beans. Or, yeah.
2: or or do that but yeah. just keeping something an active root system in that ground the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. good that you want. So right. Between cover crops, commodity yeah. crops.
1: And yeah. and so like in your area, part of the world, it's cereal rye is a hugely yeah. popular it cover is. crop and yeah. so that's one of the big ones where it doesn't take a lot to grow. It can grow in a little bit colder temperatures, but it's still in the spring it grows five six foot tall and then you lay it Very over quick and you
3: process. terminate that and then you just build into or yeah. plant yep. into that's it again that's right got yep.
1: it so Good. hopefully that helps spray
2: and it did. yeah that helps a lot what's that yeah. spray and smother
3: yeah yeah yeah
1: you got anything
4: patrick yeah i got a question uh as a non-resident landowner <coughs> you know there's a lot of things that we cannot do that yeah. a resident could do uh especially uh, save my farm for instance um like, I I, I want to get some type of income off of the open ground. Yes. And my land is rolling. Uh, yeah. I've had several farmers look at it. It's just not conducive to row crops. Yeah. Um. And it was an old cattle farm. Like I said, I can't be there. Don't really want cattle on my property all year. So, hay is a consideration. Yeah. Um. I know what we think about Bermuda. Or not Bermuda, but fescue hay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but outside of that, um, what would be your suggestions maybe if you were looking to uh, – to have some income off of a hay crop.
1: So when it comes to hay, one of the things we always uh, usually recommend is try to lean more towards alfalfa hay or at least alfalfa heavily involved in a, in a Not in just some a sort, sort of diversity. Fescue. Yeah. Right. Fescue is the last thing we sure. want. You can um, add in red clover, gone. white clover, <laughs> alfalfa. Even if it's orchard grass with lots of alfalfa and red clover involved is even is better. Um, but an alfalfa crop is, is kind of the goal with that. Or there's other, I mean, there's other options to make money. We just recently were finding out about agroforestry where people are planting, um, trees to kind of, uh, to make an income off of. But for you, if you're in an ag kind of area where there's hay involved, I would say lean towards something like alfalfa or orchard grass and clover mix, or hopefully a straight, um, you see a lot of guys just planting straight alfalfa. As much as we hate monocultures, that's kind of the popular one that you can make some nice money off of. Sure.
2: And from a forage standpoint, it's extremely attractive. Turkeys, deer, early season um, is going to be incredible over alfalfa fields.
4: Okay. Very good. Yeah. Well,
1: we're glad we're glad you guys joined us tonight. Thanks for having us. Um, and I know we t- we talked about Matt and I were just as much. It was more of a conversation than a seminar because we had so many great things in the room knowledgeable people from with pure air Pure yeah. air here so i know we're i'm excited to get them back on or get them on here and we can talk some of the actual steps exactly. nitty-gritty of planting natives so appreciate you guys yeah, yeah Thank thanks you. for having us you bet all right next up we have some employees of pure air natives who haven't been on the podcast before um pure air big and fan and of salt tooth a little bit of an inside joke for people uh we were at, at the show. We're still here at the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention, and we saw a handout of sawtooth oaks. And, and, and Chinese chestnuts. And Chinese chestnuts, yes. Um, from a, a a place that should know better. We'll An, just say
2: Anonymous that. location. That should know better. People, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so you guys, big into native grasses and wildflower restoration projects. John, you want to introduce yourself. How long you been here? What you what your what's your role at Pure Air?
6: At Pure Air, I am uh, more of a consultant. Okay. Um, I work more on the DJM, the installation, the the uh, contracting side of the business. Um, like I said, Pure Air, I'm more on the actual field identification, going mm-hmm. out with clients, doing some installation type work. That's.
1: That's your role. That's, That's a, my well, role. Um, do you go by Jonathan or John?
6: John. John. Typically, Depends on. But
1: that name's already taken, so yeah. you have to go with Jonathan. Yep.
6: Depends on who <laughs> I'm standing next to. You. <laughs> <laughs> and if they're uh, mad at you or not.
5: Yeah. yeah. Jonathan.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, Nick?
5: Yep. Um, I've been with DJM for about three years now. Um, I'm a foreman foreman, like he said. Um, do the, con- do the uh, contracting side. For pure air, you know, installing the prairies, mm-hmm. um, the TSI work, um, erosion control, and stuff like that, and concentrating on the the habitat, making sure that it it is the way it needs to be for uh, for the for our clients, not only private, but for the conservation, for the core engineers, do a lot of work for the government agencies like that, so.
2: So, be- between the two of you, you guys and DJM and everything, what are some of the, the typical projects that you guys have going on or your, you know, most popular types of projects that you that you work on throughout a given year?
6: It, it does vary a little bit by mm-hmm. time of year. So, this time of year, we're working a lot in timber stands, uh, removing invasives like honeysuckle, autumn olive, tree of heaven is mm-hmm. big around us in the city. Um,
1: you guys... I think everything's all invasives are big around you guys in the city. (laughs) Every time we drive through Saint Louis it's just like like, shut your eyes because it's 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 nothing but bush honeysuckle and except
6: for the
2: one driving.
1: Except for the one driving. (laughs) And then you just try to tunnel vision it (laughs) because you don't want to look around.
6: It is pretty terrible, especially our roadways. Yeah. You know, I feel bad for anyone that's driving through our state that actually knows what they're looking at. Mm Mhm. So um, Mm -hmm. and there's you know, we understand there's limited funds. Sure. Uh take care of that but if we could we'd do it oh yeah you know? yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to watch
1: it is very hard to watch it oh it's so frustrating and it's sickening oh man and, and roadways I mean you drive I-70 from St. Louis Kent City there's some beautiful prairies right there in the median and with all kinds of encroachment of non-natives and other invasives and it's happening right in front of our very eyes yeah um, but just not many of us know it's happening mm-hmm is that what would you say? What does a majority of your your year look like?
5: Uh, well, that varies. Um, we haven't yeah. got
1: one straight answer out of these guys.
5: No. So. With working for DJM, that's the hardest question I've ever been asked. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, a true statement. What do I do, huh? It's an ecological service. Yeah, we do. Like I said, the mayor. We focus on the prairie restoration, the ecological type work, but. I mean, we go from green roofs. we you know working for mm-hmm. BJC Hospital down in St. Louis from green roofs. We go from, uh, like I said, working in the prairies, prescribed burns, uh, timber stand improvement, working for MSD to building rain gardens. Um, there's it varies so much, which is kind of a great quality to have because you're not getting bored. You know, right, you're yeah. kind of doing every something. project brings something new. To the exactly, table. you know, and you're not you're not seeing the same thing every day. Like if you were a carpenter or something like that. So it's kind of cool, but I'd say the things that I look forward to working for DJM is the prescribed burns. Everyone likes fire. Mm-hmm. It's cool. And especially in the spring, we all love deer sheds. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a pretty easy way to find those. Um, and then the, the TSI, the timber stand improvements. And then, you know, those, those are a lot of fun doing that. Those yeah. are, that's kind of what I look forward to. That was
1: going to be my next question is what is your favorite part? What is the one part of your job that you look forward to the most? But since it's you answered I'll ask John.
6: Yep. Okay. And my favorite part is seeing the transformation process start to finish start to finish and sometimes it's an instant thing like if you're if you're in a timber stand and you know over the process of a week you can turn around and that look completely different than it did a week before i i oftentimes have to take photos Mm -hmm. because when you're doing the work you don't necessarily realize what you're doing sure but when you go back and look at that photo, you can say, "Wow, that instantly changed. I made a difference."
2: Right. You were showing me something the other day about a site. I think it was down in the Mississippi, uh, kind of the delta bottom mm-hmm. area. And you guys had came in and removed. Uh, I think it was bush honeysuckle. Yes. And talk about you know, that process. You know, the bush honeysuckle removal, and then what came back within a year.
6: Okay, that was a, a large commercial site mm-hmm. um, for a Fortune 500 company mm-hmm. of ours, and they had hired us to remove invasives and thin uh, the canopy a little bit. Th- they were looking more of a, an aesthetic look, mm-hmm. so we did remove a lot of the um, material that was on the ground also, sure. yep. which normally in a in a habitat setting we wouldn't do. Yeah. Um, but in the process of removing all that material, we opened that forest floor so much that natives that may have been dormant for 10, 15, 20 years had had instantly came back the next spring. And it made for some awesome pictures. In that particular case, there was just rows of Virginia bluebells that came back.
2: Mm-hmm. In full bloom. Which
6: is hard. Gorgeous. I mean, it's... It's not everywhere, you know. You don't see that mm-hmm. particular species everywhere. So it was really neat to, to see it come back the way it should be.
2: Right. And without removing the invasives, without um, the additional sunlight, that wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have come back that next year and seen that. No.
6: No. One, no one probably even knew it was there. You know. Right.
2: Right. And just and th- I think that that brings you know the important factor of what we talk about all the time is you know. Doing this work, you kind of have a you know an understanding of you know, a goal of where you want to get to, um, but you never know what that seed bed has got in mm-hmm. store. And exposing it, you can be pleasantly surprised. And it's kind of a treasure box. It and is. and, and
1: it, yeah, you're opening up a package on Christmas morning. You don't know if it's going to be a beautiful wildflower or a native grass or whatever it's going to be. Sometimes, and this is a question we get a lot. Well, if I open it up, all I'm going to get back is an invasive. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but if you don't open it up, it's always going to be the same, if not declining. Well, it will be declining. It's mm-hmm. just going to get worse and worse. So if it is an invasive that comes up, let's just, we'll come back and, k- and get rid of it too. And then we'll see what we have coming back. Yeah. So sitting on our hands is not the way to do it.
6: No. And, no. I, and on that particular site, erosion was also a very big issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you guys have talked about it before about... The, the fact that honeysuckle does not provide any erosion control at all. No, with, there's yeah. very
2: little leaf cover underneath them.
6: Yeah, and the fact that we were able to get a native establishment that very next spring is already going to start improving that process. And
1: yeah, the root absolutely. system on bush honeysuckle is terrible. Mm-hmm. It's one of those that, you, I mean, even if almost a five-foot tree, you could grab it and yank it out of the ground. It's terrible, so yeah. that's awesome. Virginia bluebells, mm-hmm. what's been the rarest of rare that you've found?
6: That That's a tough question. Because
1: um. that's always the most exciting thing for me is you do this work or you you see all these acres and acres and acres, and you find that one flower, you're like, I do not know what that is. And yeah, I have and to go look it up. Surprising. Have you ever
2: cried over a flower? <laughs> don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> no, just just don't, don't do it.
6: Oh, I'd have to think about that. Um, and I'm not... As good as we have one employee that does all all the actual um, putting the mixes together and all, all the background work behind mm-hmm. everything at Pure mm-hmm. Air, and he's like an encyclopedia, we call him. We right. When we have a question about a plant, we call him. Um, what's he, his name? I think I've met him. Trevor. 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 Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. I defer a lot of questions to Trevor when I don't know things because um, there's, there's some it's plants. It's hard to keep up with. It is. Oh. I mean, they're – thousands Thousands of species thousands um and every individual state you know Mm -hmm. and he knows every single one of them that's incredible but he does yeah so that's a really hard question to answer because i defer a lot of those (laughs) unknowns to him right Um,
1: i know for us one of the most exciting ones there's been two in the last year um and i'll credit my brother with one of them um both of them actually because he's the one who found them and told me about them matt and i we went back and found them but we had this uh small and it didn't register as glade and i say that with air quotes because it didn't register and in, in the uh the state agency um site index map mapping software but everything points to it being a glade it's rock outcroppings, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of glade sensitive species um and then there was cedar encroachment. And so we actually did a government program, and we removed the cedars. Drastic amounts of sunlight came down and went back, and here's this plant growing around, and and we're looking at it, and we're like, that's the, that's the craziest, that's a weird-looking plant. And it ended up, looked like a milkweed, but it was a vine. And uh, we narrowed it down to where we believe is Baldwin's Milk Vine, which hasn't been registered in USDA uh, for that county, Douglas County, Missouri. So... Mm-hmm. We're, we're still unsure, but we believe it's probably that. Um, and then after a timber harvest, closed canopy forest, timber harvest, all kinds of sunlight, and we saw one of our native uh, honeysuckles. honeysuckles come up, and we hadn't seen in the area ever, so really cool for us.
2: Now, you guys are super mm-hmm. big hunters. We've been talking about hunting you know, in the booth the whole weekend. Um You have some opportunities probably through the job and everything to be able to hunt prairies. Mm -hmm. Not that many people hunt prairies, especially from a whitetail standpoint. Um, Tell me a good hunt over prairie because we know, and we're always talking about, you know, how the system's so beneficial and this and that. Like, what is it truly, from a hunting standpoint, like hunting that prairie, you know, and quality of deer we're talking about? Because you guys have shown some pictures. It's pretty, pretty awesome.
5: Well, with, with deer hunting, it's the, what I tell my my friends and people that have clients that I talk to. When you think of a prairie, it's more of a bedding. Mm-hmm. So I try to stay out of the prairies mm-hmm. when I'm hunting just because that's their sanctuary. That's where they yeah. want to be. They'll come out when they want to eat, when they want to roam. But I, me personally, I stay out of prairies. Now, walking through prairies, I've never seen so much deer activity. You know, the, the bedding, the, the trails... I right. mean, it's like New York City running through there. There's trails going everywhere. I'm like any any of the tall, the 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 blue stem, the mm-hmm. Indian grass, anything like that, or the switchgrass at my farm. It's unreal the deer activity that's in there. Like I said, I try to stay away from it just because that's their sanctuary. Right. But it's un it's it's unreal how the activity that runs through. I'm a sure you've
2: probably seen it, but when you use prescribed fire and you come back and you're looking for sheds, you can see the trails. Oh yeah, mm-hmm.
6: they're
5: they're green. They're already yeah. Yeah. green because there's nothing it's there. It's matted down. Yeah. yeah.
6: yeah.
1: You, John, okay. Jonathan.
6: Yeah, and
1: your dad's uh, in the room, so like you John. said, <laughs> it's uh
6: when when I talk to people about it, it's it's a little different because if someone asks me like a question about timber hunting, I'm like, I I don't know, like <laughs> I I've never hunted hardwood timber. That's it's just a completely different thing to me. Uh, but I, I was, I think I was telling you a story mm-hmm. about hunting in northern Missouri and. It's it's literally like hunting out west if you get into a hill ground that has, you know, large establishments of prairie. And you can spot and stalk deer. And mm-hmm. I've had some, some really good results with that. And it's just neat to see the way they move through a prairie. Right. Um, yeah, I have had a lot of success hunting through prairies. And I think it's just because... Uh, I feel like it's almost easier to pattern a deer um, in a prairie. You can see how how they're moving from the, the bedding source, like he said, mm-hmm. if it is the prairie, into the food source, which could also be part of that prairie. You know, maybe a sure. different setting, a different, hi- a different height variation in that prairie. It's just, I'm a visual hunter, so mm-hmm. um, it's easier to watch deer for me in a prairie than... Absolutely, a, a, in a woodland setting, where they're maybe just passing through or feeding on a couple acorns.
1: hmm Mm-hmm. Very cool.
2: And you, you shared to hunt. Basically, I guess it was rut and buck chases doe. You cut them off. You you know you spotted them. Made a made a plan. Cut them off, and it's the biggest buck you've you've killed, right?
6: Yeah, and that that buck scored uh, 164. Mm-hmm. um you know, to some people, that's a huge deer. To some people, that's, you know, a good deer. But yeah. for for that type of hunting in Missouri, you know, it's...
2: That's a great deer.
6: Uh, I, no matter what. Yeah.
2: yeah. That's awesome. I, I think uh, there needs to be more stories told about, you know, the prairies and the wildlife, mm-hmm. um, the hunting in and around them. Because not many people have the opportunity to, and we're trying to get more out there, trying to get more from, because response from hunters and land managers, you know, and it boils down to success, success mm-hmm. around them. We talked about turkeys this afternoon. Um, I'm sure the rabbits and this th- everything else is, is incredible. Quail. Yeah. As well, in and around those prairies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, thank you guys for joining us. Yeah. And, no uh. Keeping it fun in the booth all weekend. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's been a fun show. Uh, I know we have a couple more guests put on here, so thank you guys. You're welcome. So now we have the real deal, John Wingo, not the not the one prior, but the real John Wingo. Correct.
7: John D- Wingo can be
1: in two places at once. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Justin joining us once again. Pure natives, guys. Been around how, combining, John. You've been in natives for a long, long time. Before we started recording, you you were telling that you kind of started getting into the native situation in what eight, mid 80s, basically. So 30 plus years you've been. 87s when I really turned
7: from traditional horticulture to uh, natives.
1: Well, that's easy math for me. That was the year I was born. So 31 years you've been doing natives, Justin. You've uh, been at Pure Air for a little, what, two years, a year, two years? Yeah,
8: 14, 15 months or so. Okay. Yeah. 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 Second NWTF show here. so Yeah.
1: So kind of a, you know, everybody's already touched on it, but a great show, always a lot of fun, a lot of people um, coming through here, 58,000, I think is what yeah. they're saying. So big show, big crowd. Um,
2: diverse crowd, too. Diverse. Young Speaking of
1: diverse. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Way to throw that in there, man. Who would have known?
1: Yeah, the segue right there, (laughs) the the old transition right into diversity. Um, And, John, you've been, as I said, 31 years doing this. So I ask you this in the show. um, Have you seen, what is the changes you've seen in the amount of information people are seeking, information people are gaining from diverse native stands? Um, Where's that rank as far as... Thirty years ago, fifteen years ago, to now, do, do you feel like there's more people excited and looking back into native prairie type restoration, or less?
7: Oh, definitely more. When I first started out, I was just some nut planting weeds.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I figured I so. And yeah, uh,
7: anymore, it's uh, it's in vogue now. It's speaking engagements, and people really want to hear about it.
1: Yeah, and and not uh, I think we've talked about it tonight, but. Not just people that are, you pull from all crowds. You've got people wanting more pollinators, so they're looking at this. You've got cattle farmers wanting a better summer forage, so they're looking at native grasses and um, native native plantings. Um, and then you've got people concerned just environment and trying to improve the environment, water and air quality, and so they're looking at this. Seems like there's so many people going this route, and and it's got to be exciting for you. I'm sure back in... 31 years ago and everybody thought you were a nut planting weeds it was kind of like i know how i would be where at some point you're like man am i just gonna always look like a a fool to these people are they gonna get it at some point so i'm sure it feels good to to know more and more people are looking into it so
7: that it does it it was hard to take the first 10 years of abuse
2: (laughs) yeah i imagine so for sure what do you think In that 31 years was the tipping point that you saw, okay, maybe it was one major thing, um, just change. You know, that people are like, I got it. I got it now. What was that? Or is that a thing? Just been a slow migration. Have we
1: even made it to that point? Yeah.
7: (laughs) Well, honestly, the past 10 years have been really the the turning point, the pivot point of when people have started to realize that, you know, we're pulling nature back into balance and it's having multiple benefits not just looking at the flagship species like quail and turkey and the and the game species but also looking at the other impacts like stormwater runoff air quality carbon sequestration and honestly we're not doing anything new we're just mm-hmm. putting back what was there before and it's kind of like we do all these bioswales now for stormwater runoff but uh you know, the prairie streams and that, we're doing that thousands of years before we ever settled this country.
1: Do you think he's listening to the podcast, or is <laughs> yeah. he just preaching the same thing we've always talked drinking about? The same <laughs> we are drinking the same we Kool-Aid. We were drinking the same Kool-Aid. drinking the same Kool-Aid. Oh, that's all. Aw- so it's probably very frustrating for you, too, when you're talking about the erosion control. People are doing this, and you see people put, uh, like, turf grass in the waterways. Are you as, as frustrated with that as I am? I, I, we walk a lot of these waterways in, across the Midwest and crop fields and they're tall fescue or uh, orchard grass. And it's like, I, I thought we knew better, but apparently we don't.
7: Well, it's the same same story. I mean, yeah. basically... In this urban environment, you, uh, we had gone through the th- uh, phase where it was, you know, you piped everything in concrete, you hardened off your streams, and you got the water out of there as fast as possible. But water velocity is our, our enemy. Yeah. And uh, fescue is great for water velocity. If you want to make a waterway out of uh, tall fescue, why it lays over and it sheets water mm-hmm. just like concrete. Yeah. And uh, so the scenario is the same on both ends. You're you're moving water faster, but you're moving all your assets, your topsoil, your debris, your pollutants are all going down to the the Gulf of Mexico quicker.
1: Yep. Yep.
2: I think it sounds like basically the research is what's out there now. About that, you know, 10 years ago, we really started to study it and figure out, oh, my gosh, what we had before is actually what we need now. And would you agree with that? You know, when the research really started to come out, people's eyes just opened up.
7: Well, pretty much. And it's the same way with prairie restoration. Uh, you know, everything prior to 10 years ago was all anecdotal. There's data now. People have opened their eyes now paying attention. And just mm-hmm. analyzing the problems we have, we're actually reverse engineering things is what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've we've got the problem. We're just now recognizing it.
3: Yeah.
1: Wow. I know we definitely want to cover this, and before yeah. we forget it, or before we get on, because I've got multiple questions asked. Sorry, Justin, hey. you've been on here before. You're just going to be here to kind of help guide and keep him in line, right? Uh, yeah,
8: <laughs> I don't know how much I'll be able to do that, but yeah, that's, I'm I'm just here to hang out.
1: <laughs> and so um john's been doing this and i'm sure he's got i know i've already we've hung out a couple times on and specifically on a planting recently and so he has got a lot of great stories but let's walk through for our listeners the the best scenario for planting and establishing native grasses and wildflowers let's say we're trying to restore prairie pollinator setup what is step number one
7: open your eyes <laughs> look and see what what you yeah. have there already yeah. because that initial site assessment and visualizing what natural plant community would have been occurred there pre-settlement or what is the topography and your climate and your soils going to direct you to uh, yeah. if you don't do a, a good initial site uh, assessment and you're trying to put a tall grass pra- prairie on a on a glade setting mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to end well yes but if you do a good initial site assessment follow it up with uh, once you've established you know the community that's there what are your problem children you know what invasive species are there what sort of weeds are you expecting in that seed bank like has it been an old pasture and it's yeah. gone to seed year after year with quite a bit of uh, non-native species seeding into that soil you're going to have built up a a seed bank of those and looking around at the adjacent properties and what's in the fence rows can kind of give you a good clue to what you're you're going to face after you kill off your fescue or whatever that predominant crop was there before. Uh, Preparing a good plan for dealing with that in advance and doing you know, at least one full season of preparation to eliminate some of that seed bank in the soil. Because, like, if you've got a fescue pasture, the fescue is allelopathic, so it suppresses a lot of species from coming through it. And when you kill the fescue, you get that flush of whatever is in that seed bank below that. It's kind of like a bad Christmas. <laughs> you know, you, you don't know what presents you're going to be brought, but it's going to be a surprise. Being prepared for that, then... Following through, doing a good job of eliminating your competition on the front end is is step one. Step two, designing the appropriate plant community to go into that. And then the third step is following through with proper establishment stewardship. Uh, The amount of times that I've been fired in the second year for people thinking, well, this is just a weed patch that's come up. is phenomenal. I mean, it's almost every time but by year three, if they've done what they've been told and done the proper stewardship, high-mowed the annual weeds off so they don't go to seed, spot-sprayed out any perennials before they can produce some large flush of seed and then reestablish themselves. Yeah. You know, third year it comes around.
1: Yeah. So what was that little thing you told us? Sleep? Oh, yeah, All a right.
7: prairie. In its first year it sleeps. It puts down a root system. Second year, it creeps. It doesn't grow very much. It's still fighting battle with the competition. Third year, it leaps. So it finally starts to look like what people expected in that first year because yeah. nobody's got the patience to wait three years.
2: <laughs> it, it's it's tough. Yeah. It, it's tough sometimes because what we deal with all the time when we're talking about food plots and this and that, that's pretty much immediate results. Two weeks later, hopefully you know, you're getting some some sort of germination.
1: Instant gratification. That, yeah.
2: You know, that that's what we search for. Uh, it's just based on our culture these days. But you know, we're going back into something or, you know, looking at history, it takes time to get this stuff to develop and we have to take our mindset out of instant gratification when we're planting something that is going to be established for so long if we do the right maintenance.
1: So let's say a, a landowner or a listener has a five acre field that's one acre food plot the rest is just old pasture it's just mostly mostly tall fescue whatever it's used to have cows on it years ago now it doesn't it's a hunting farm how can they establish diversity diverse natives within that stand what are the steps of course we're going to assess and see what natives, what was their pre-settlement, what the best stand would be to establish, correct? Correct. I and mean, so, then we. what would be the next step?
7: The next step is to eliminate uh, existing cover. This non-native. So, start
1: what time of the year would you recommend starting
7: on I that? would normally recommend starting May or June. Okay. And go ahead and spray that out. With the, what? Well, normally, you know, if it's in an area where where we don't have a huge problem, like in a lot of agricultural settings with Roundup Resistant, we would just use glyphosate. Okay.
1: I'm really trying to put him in a box here and and make him uncomfortable because we're trying to get answers out of a very... A broad. lot of variables. Yep. And so we'll just try to humor me. How about that yeah. humor well, me?
7: Well looking at that old pasture, I'm gonna expect yeah. to have to do an extensive cleanup. Yeah. Because it's not like row crop ground where a lot of that weed seed bank mm-hmm. has been worked out of the soil and killed off over time. Yeah. So it's built up a, a fairly decent seed bank yeah. of, of cool season invasive yeah and not in just normal run of the mill annual weeds.
1: Yeah, so you're going to spray it. So
7: I'm going to spray it probably three times through that summer, Yeah, and then if it looks pretty pretty clean, I will probably cover crop that in the fall, and then no-till drill or frost seed into it in the winter. With your natives. With my natives in the dormant season, because most of your natives are smarter than I am. (laughs) (laughs) They're not going to throw all their chips on the table at once. Uh, And to get the best bang for your buck, they need a lot of whole moist stratification where they go through oscillating warming cooling and freezing and thawing and get some moisture in there to break down that seed coat but they even with perfect stratification they don't all germinate at once there'll be some stragglers that'll prairie always hedges its bet you Mm -hmm. know it doesn't put all its cards on the table at once so you know, I want to get as much of that to germinate as I can in that first year, but my expectation is I'm going to see things that second year I didn't see. And there are some species that won't express themselves for five to six years if you're going in with a, a diverse native mix.
1: Wow.
2: When you talk about cover crop, um, we've talked about this before the podcast, maxing out 30 pounds an acre for about for wheat, oats, because you don't want too too dense of a stand of a cover crop so you can broadcast and have that you know seed to soil contact is that correct
7: that's correct i mean you can get carried away real easily mm-hmm. just wanting to see something green sure but uh, the factor with that is is erosion you know if it's a steep slope i may go up as high as a bushel to the acre mm-hmm. on my steeper places but you know where i've got flat ground and it's not going to wash a good density is about a half bushel to the acre for a cover crop
1: gotcha what about a could, during that summer months, could a person? I am sure. I'm sure there's benefit to like planting a Roundup Ready soybean um, in that area, so you have something growing where it's not just bare ground. Is that something you guys recommend, or it could do? Oh yeah, most yeah.
7: definitely. Okay. I mean, with the realization that you you will be spraying it out in the in the fall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But uh, you know, Roundup Ready beans is a, is a good solution. Yeah. You know, if there's problems with any of your Roundup resistant crops in there because there's been roundup resistant mare's tail that's come out a lot now. Yeah. Roundup resistant water hemp. And worst come to worst, uh, Palmer amaranth is yep. a, a real culprit you have to watch out for uh, because it produces a great proliferation of seed compared to your water hems and your others. I mean that's what yeah. puts a damper on the soybeans is it gets enough in there that it really reduces yield you may have to spray
1: the whole thing with another herbicide and just kill it all
7: yeah so you really want to watch out where you have wind pollinated annual uh, species in there because they develop resistance quicker
1: okay and so now we fast forward and we plant you plant the natives in the in the winter
7: plant the natives in the dormant season yes sir and uh when you're in the dormant season You're going to get more diversity as far as your forbs go. Your wildflowers will germinate before the grasses. And if your goal is grasses, I normally recommend that people bump up the quantity of grasses if they're doing a dormant season planting because a lot of those will be suppressed in that seeding uh, planting in the dormant season. Follow that up with uh, good stewardship throughout the first establishment year is really critical. I normally try to get at least one mow in before the uh, summer solstice. But if I have a really warm spring it may be as early as the end of May for your first mowing. And the reason for mowing is to clip that before any of your winter annuals go to seed. Because the whole thing is to limit the population growth Mm -hmm. and just favor the natives which are growing slow so we're clipping those annuals off and then we're being vigilant watching our fence lines and things we expect to come in there as far as persistent perennial weeds like thistles sericeal espadiza johnson grass some of your plantains that uh, are perennials that will uh, will persist and really won't be knocked back by just mowing so combination of high mowing and spot spraying it's really not that much to it
1: is there going to be any mowing on yeah not that much to it it's uh, <laughs> how many month process but once you get established let's say two years in are you doing any mowing the second year
7: the second year it's really nice to at least get one high mow in there right around the summer solstice is ideal because many of your warm season species haven't uh, started the process of flowering yeah and they'll still bloom that second year but bloom shorter mm-hmm. they're dwarfed back and you know still monitoring is your, your most critical step and knowing what you're looking for opening so
1: your eyes again
7: open your eyes again yep. and educating yourself on you know what weed pressures do you have out there do you know what your your planting should be looking like do you, do you recognize seedlings and the early stages of growth in your prairie plants and know the difference between those and the weeds so it it takes a little a little research
1: and so once it's established now do you usually recommend what kind of maintenance over the long haul
7: over the long haul if they are fire dependent plant communities so it's really good to get in there and burn those in lieu of burning if it's in a situation where a person's not comfortable with it it can be mowed if i have to mow in lieu of burning i like dormant season burns to start out with but if i if i can't burn i'm going to just mow it down to dirt in february or march when everything's cured out good and that plant material will just shatter and disperse into smaller pieces and not be smothering the existing prairie
1: Mm.
2: let's say from a habitat standpoint Would you recommend mowing a portion of it every single year? Let's say you've got a five-acre prairie and you know there's quail and uh, rabbits in there, you know, mowing, let's say, an acre and a half one year, then coming back and doing the next, you know, on a rotation like that so you're not removing all that cover at one point?
7: Yes, whether mowing or burning. We we normally like to divide it up into units Mm -hmm. and for sure not do over 50% a year, you know, when you're in that third fourth fifth and continued on into establishment not only for just nesting cover but there's a lot of insects and invertebrates that that overwinter on plant stalks praying mantises will be up there on your uh, a lot of your uh, golden rods and that and there's a lot of the insect community that you're going to impact if you if you go for that nice clean total flat black burn, or look. you just mow yeah. it all down like a golf course you know you're you're removing all the refuge for insects you're removing all the cover for wildlife so that's that's definitely a mistake i coach people into avoiding
2: great point point. Uh, like and in a lot of the insects you're talking about they're burrowing in to the hollow stems of a lot of these plants correct they are that's and you so you can't see them a lot no. of times and, and so, like I said, you're, you're just going into mowing. You don't know necessarily what you're doing, but leaving half or more or, you know, somewhere around that 50% mark of a planting to maintain is super important.
1: What if somebody has a field that is, has a lot of natives already in it, but it had basically what, what would occur is they took a field that was a little rougher and tried to establish a cool season non-native pasture and it didn't go so well and so they have a mix of cool seasons and then they also have natives trying to grow um
7: well there we're going from a reconstruction because we're planting into something where there's no natives in the seed bank yeah you basically can never recreate what a remnant prairie was yes now if there's a remnant prairie component to that Mm -hmm. what i recommend people do is go ahead and and avoid that spring and summer roundup. Mm-hmm. Fescue, which is predominantly what you f- I find that situation in that situation a lot of times where people have overseeded a prairie thinking they're going to get this uh, this great cattle pasture. Yeah. You know, and all they do is end- wind up with the darn fescue with endophyte in it and lose mm-hmm. weight on their cattle. They do a lot better going in in November and December when most of the natives are dormant. And the one caveat with that is fescue can be a little tougher that time of year as far as taking up the herbicide. So I'll normally go in there in November, December, and I'll I'll go into the little little bit hotter, not a whole lot hotter, like a three a to four percent solution of roundup with the right adjuvants in there. Well water, city water, uh they're all pretty high pH. So I normally recommend that people buffer that down to a pH of around four and a half so it gets better penetration into the epidermis of the plant. And uh, use ammonium sulfate to acidify your water at at least 17 pounds per 100 gallons of water with methylated seed oil as a sticker in there at one quart per 100 gallons and get a good spray on that on one of those nice bluebird sunny days when it's 40 50 degrees out, and you just knock knock that fescue back like nobody's business because it's actually pulling carbohydrate down into the root system then so it it pulls all that in and it's just phenomenal how that works it actually works on the bush honeysuckle too we've gone in on invasive control in woodlands with a helicopter and put down that same spray solution over the tree canopy Mm -hmm. we did 1200 acres that way and uh, got an 80 percent kill out of it
2: that's impressive
7: that was uh very impressive
2: Mm. i think we're all hunters here but that man right there gets some enjoyment out of killing some vegetation. <laughs> <laughs> well, he goes, you do this, you do that, and you knock the snot out of it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Out of all the years, has there been one project where you've been like, that was that was the most rewarding or that was the most fun to see that transformation? Does Is there any project or restoration uh, that happened that really sticks in your mind?
7: Oh, the best reconstruction I've seen over time was... Uh actually on an old nuclear site and we like to call it the st louis pyramid but it was the weldon springs reclamation site and uh, they had at first wanted to go in there and go cheap and they uh, had paid somebody to try to hydro fescue into it and then they realized that they were going to uh, be mowing you know 20-25 weeks a year mm-hmm. and uh, went back to prairie but that one actually went in with uh, 40 species of forbs and five species of grasses into 150 acres it was slow to come along but now it uh, you wouldn't hardly recognize it from a remnant except for you know Mm. we know what we're looking at most remnants will have Mm -hmm. 300 species plus in there and this is only 35 to 40 that actually succeeded in that but that was a real gratifying one to do it was right next door to that honeysuckle and it's it's also provided good income because the uh, landowner on the honeysuckle side doesn't control the ceresia so it's good summer work
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> Funny.
1: wow is there a i'm thinking about prairies do you have a favorite like native prairie in the country that you like to go to or that you've been to that's, that's kind of special
7: Oh, down in uh, Southwest Missouri, Golden Prairie is one of those. It's actually a, a national landmark now. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the remnants owned by the Missouri Prairie Foundation. That's that's probably my favorite.
1: And w- where's that one at in Southwest Missouri?
7: That's down uh, by Lockwood.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Didn't we visit? Yeah, we
7: visited
2: that.
1: Yeah. I think, I so. think so. Yeah. From
2: close to Redneck. Yep.
1: Yeah but they're yeah, uh, redneck blinds mm-hmm. we we swung by anytime we're going along and we see signs and we have time we're like hey it looks like there's a prairie over here let's go check it out and i think that's when we checked that one out so
7: but uh, missouri prairie foundation has over three thousand acres now of remnant prairie wow hmm. in the state that they've preserved and that's uh, any one of them is worth going to look at
1: and you used to be president of missouri prairie foundation correct yes and how many years were you doing that
7: I was actually in a four-year term. I only made it through three years because I had a heart attack on my third year, so ah. I had to uh Too many pass, invasives pass were the involved torch. in his
2: yeah. life that year. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I got oh. the best of in my yeah. third year. <laughs> Cerisa was really coming on strong. Well, <laughs> yeah. that
7: was the year that we also acquired uh, pure air natives. Oh, okay. And that was going into the native seed industry is not for the weak at heart. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Bad. oh Very that's bad. funny yeah i i sure uh, have enjoyed talking to you is there any i asked justin last time he was on the podcast we we the last 10 minutes we talked about our favorites and i and i asked your son this in the in the booth this weekend and do you have what are your favorite let's say what's your favorite native grass oh, you weren't expecting a, that question stumping
2: him He's yeah, been able to no, answer there's everything but so many, but
7: no, It's so really tough to uh, say, but uh, actually my favorite native, and the only reason it is my favorite native is because I hate turf so bad, is that little Danthonia grass that grows in those cedar glades. It only gets about two inches tall, <laughs> and I've always wanted to just, you know, being in the traditional horticulture industry for a little while just ruined me i've i've just hated turf you know i (laughs) i got to the point where it's like i really i don't see the point Uh, (laughs) if if you're gonna cut grass you might as well bale it up and feed it to something it really has no functional use other than just to look at Uh, yeah yeah so that little grass has been one i've always dreamed of that and buffalo grass are two of my favorites because i've always wanted to like make the the miniature prairie that you could put in your yard and never have to fire up the lawnmower
1: there you go <laughs> man that that yep. you know uh, matt and i've talked about that a lot like how frustrating is it for once you start understanding natives and and the non-natives and non-native invasives and and understanding the effect to our footprint on the landscape and then you go out and you fire up a lawnmower and you put ornamentals or or you buy a house for for like me you buy a house that has all this landscaping done my wife's like oh man the landscaping is beautiful but none of it's native and there's a bradford pear in the front yard and it's all non-native uh grasses it's like
2: the, it, it almost
1: outside. gives me a heart attack thing but it's like i can't even look around in my own yard and i'm like the dream for me would be to try to establish a a, a yard that is native, and that's where I I've looked at buffalo grass a lot. Um, some of these other natives that you're like, man, that could be really cool to establish and help people establish native landscapes and put in uh, American beautyberry in your flower garden and some of these other big clumpy uh, bunch grasses. But
7: um, well, basically, even with your trees, you know, yeah, there are like 300 insect species that use oaks. Yeah, you know, there are like Four species that that use Bradford pear. <laughs>
1: oh no yeah. Well, it's getting to be that time of year. Actually, my brother was driving over from from where he lives in uh, uh, western western Arkansas, and said that he's already starting to see Bradford pears kind of down there, and it's a good time to start locating those and getting them killed off.
8: Yes, sir.
2: <laughs> yep, sure is. Well, you turn around, you look at this this banner back behind us. Got the root system structure. Oh, buffalo, buffalo grass. grass I've looked at it foot. so much.
6: Seven, seven foot, foot
2: and it looks like it's six, six f- inches on fescue. Uh,
1: and and not only that, but buffalo grass looks like it's six inches tall above above ground, and then uh-huh. it's six foot below ground. It's like it's, the iceberg. Yeah, yeah. So, um, man, I am trying to think. Of, there was if there's any other stories or favorite tips. Favorite forb? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. We,
2: you talked about grass. What's your favorite forb?
7: Oh, I I really enjoy seeing that first. Part of spring when the pr- paintbrush comes out. That, yeah. So, yeah, that's also a fascinating one because it'll just drive. We also do a greenhouse operation, and that will just drive you batty trying to grow it because <laughs> <laughs> it's a semi-parasitic s- species, and you have to grow it on with something else that it can parasitize. Otherwise, mm. they'll germinate, they'll come up, they'll get a nice little plant going, and then they die. Oh. <laughs>
1: So have you ever been? I'm sure you've been to Glade Top Trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were there. We turkey hunted there last yeah. year, like the f- one of the first or second week. And the second Indian week. Paintbrush was everywhere. It's just beautiful. Um, just a that's a uh, that's a place I would encourage everybody that's passing through Southern Missouri to check out because it's it's a really cool place to see. So Indian Paintbrush. I don't think anybody's yeah, ever said no, that one. I on I've heard one. that one yeah yours was uh justin you said what did you say i know it.
2: i know it i know it hold on um it's
1: blue let's see how, see A- how aster yeah it's N- some master new england New, new england england aster. Aster. Yeah, yeah new yep. england aster that's right yeah and i said like 10 because <laughs> i can't ever narrow it <laughs> right. down so yeah anyway uh justin you got anything to add to uh, john you pretty much put the headset on and listen to him talk so yeah
8: you know I, I i get to do that um regularly and and uh you know that's always fun. I obviously, you know he's he's uh, he's been doing this a long time, so I, uh, I shut up and listen and learn yeah. some stuff. So, and I know uh, to paint a little picture for the listeners too. You guys were just about fighting over who gets to ask the next question over there. So you guys were pretty excited too to, to talk to John. Yes. So that was fun to see uh, for me. But uh, no, I just want to uh, thank you guys for for being with us this weekend and and uh, you know coming and doing the seminar with us and um, Nick and Jonathan and Debbie's here helping and John Wingo and you know we've got a lot of uh, a lot of experience and expertise in our booth uh, this weekend and really helped out a lot and you guys being there to uh, chat a little bit you know the hats man you guys you guys got some good looking hats man i, I do need to i do need to throw in a, a quick little shout out to uh to one of our employees back home who uh Chose to go wine tasting instead of uh, coming to the <laughs> event with us. So, Brandon, I'll make sure I pick you up a hat before yep. we come back. So, yeah, um, just know that uh, we're all going to be teasing you for quite a while. On he that. won't yeah.
2: live down the wine tasting <clears throat> ever. Nope. Public knowledge now,
8: <laughs> but no, yeah. no. So, uh, thanks for thanks for hanging. I, I got to ask and, one and more
1: question to John. Please. He's so much around prairies this whole the last thirty-one years. So, what's the most? I know you got stories on it you have a story like interesting find in a story or in a prairie or um basically any kind of old stories that uh revolve around the prairie you got anything that comes up like on an establishment or stuff you've found in a prairie like on some of the old prairie remnants like a a bird how many bobolinks have you seen on prairies have you got to see many bobolinks
7: oh they're on just about every mpf prairie uh I like the scissor-tail flycatcher.
1: Mm, okay. They're yeah, cool. That's, that's, uh, and we haven't to, covered that one on one of our little no. profiles. That's definitely. I saw one the other day, or back in the fall, and I'm like, we need
2: to cover like when they that sit one. sit there on that barbed bar wire just, nope. Scissor-tail oh. yep.
1: flycatcher. You know, I grew up in Mansfield, Missouri, which was mostly cattle pasture and uh, timber, and bad on both parts. And first time I ever saw a scissor-tail flycatcher, I went to... My brother was playing baseball uh, west of Springfield, Missouri, which is kind of in that area that Henry Schoolcraft talked about. You know, starting to see the tall prairies standing on the stirrups of a right. of a horse, and the first time I ever saw that flycatcher, scissor tail flycatcher, was like, what is hanging off the back end of that bird? <laughs> just was like that was something out of National Geographic. I'd never seen it, so that definitely is a cool one. um That that I think a lot of people should check out. So anyway i think we're good yeah i Man, don't even appreciate know. what time are we on
2: i don't even know don't matter we're almost scared we're rock and look. rolling
1: so no i appreciate Hour everyone here air and yeah.
2: uh and WTF. It's been a great weekend everyone coming out uh this evening too
1: how can they uh talk to you guys when they're planting um uh, starting to establish or think about planting this stuff what how do they, sure, get, in touch?
8: they, they can get in touch with us uh through the email address, sales at pureairnatives.com, or give us a call, 636 357 6433.
1: Perfect. There you have it. I have no idea how to memorize that. When he rattled that off, it sounded like <laughs> way more numbers than a phone number. But whatever, maybe it'll work for him. Anyway, guys, hopefully you enjoyed it, we'll catch you next time. See ya.